father-in-law was a doctor. And uh, I know that we, we have some folks in the medical field here in the congregation, and uh, you may experience some situations where, you know, folks come to you and say, hey, can you just look at my kid? Or, you know, I, I don't know what to do. There's, uh, you know, I, there's somebody sick. And so because of that, their family, when they went on vacations, they would go camping. And at the time, that was, you know, before cell phones. So when you went camping, you were out there, and uh, nobody was going to find you. Yet, uh, one time, they went camping in Big Bend. And I don't know how many of y'all have been to Big Bend. It's not just rural, it's desolate. And we had a situation just, uh, I think, last year where uh, our son had a, a very high fever and we were, I don't know, about five hours to a pharmacy that had children's uh, over-the-counter medicine. Uh, so that, that's how far out in the middle of nowhere this is. And so they're out there camping in Big Bend, and wouldn't believe it, but a patient found him there and said, my, my mom is really sick. Can you just come look at her, please? And so he did. And I'm, if you are in medicine, you may have had some sort of similar situation that you've experienced. And if you were this lady who had the sick mother, would you have done the same thing? I'm sure you would have, especially if you were at Big Bend and five hours from nowhere. So sickness can be a great burden for people. And people go to great lengths to be healed. And the options in the past were more limited, but today we know more, we can do more, and it costs more because of that. You know, and even as there's medical progress, we're still limited in what we can do. You know, adjusted for inflation, we spend six times per person what we did in 1970 on health care. And, you know, what does that represent? It means that even as we learn more, we can spend and invest more Yet, there are still limits to what we can do, even as we spend more and more, right? And this week, we're going to look at a series of accounts where Jesus healed. And his healings were miraculous, even by today's standards. And as Jesus' reputation grew, people came to him. And they were weighed with burdens, and with no hope of healing, they sought him out. So we have three healing accounts that we're going to look at this week. Uh, first, we're going to see that Jesus has the, the power to heal. This is the account of heal, him healing a leper. And we're going to see how he has the authority to heal. This is the account of him healing the centurion's servant. And then we're going to see how he heals completely. And there's an account of him healing both Peter's mother and many others, it says. And so let's read... Matthew 8, starting in verse 1, in your pew Bibles, it should be page 813. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, 
See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priests and offer the gifts that Moses commanded for a proof to them. When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown out into outer darkness, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother in law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her. And she rose and began to serve him. And that evening, they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons. And he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Now before we get into this passage, I'm just going to uh, give a little bit of a contextual preview of of where we're going in Matthew. We, we've just completed the Sermon on the Mount. We've been there for quite some time. And now we're heading into chapters 8 and 9, where there's this series of accounts of Jesus moving around and interacting with people and healing the people. And there's this series of miracles. And so as we go through these accounts, let's think about how they each add context to the story as a whole. Right? We meet a leper and a paralytic Right? Both they're suffering from severe ailments. And we meet this centurion, someone who was not part of the Jewish people at all, but whose servant lay sick. And then he heals Peter's mother and many others. We see Jesus crossing the sea and calming the storm and the fear that his disciples had in that moment. And then in a Gentile region, he deals with the demon-possessed men and a herd of pigs And then he invites a tax collector to join him. And as we go through the gospel, sections like this might at first glance seem like a disconnected jumble of stories. As you go through your Bible reading, you read this chapter and you see these accounts and you move on. And I challenge you, as you read through the gospels, look at these sections and see the themes that they're building upon. So notice that none of these is a typical Jewish person, especially this week. Right? He does interact with scribes in these chapters, but it's almost interludes as they contrast right, the Jewish establishment with the people that Jesus is helping. And so they're, they're all out of the ordinary in some way. Right? The sick who were socially ostracized, the, the Romans who were despised, the women who would not have been highlighted in the literature of that day, 
And then we get to this Gentiles and demons and pigs. Right? These stories show the breadth of people with whom Jesus interacted. And his healings and miracles in these social groups shows his willingness to heal among them. And so the gospel of the kingdom is for them too. And so notice also their faith, right? The, the ones who were healed had much faith, while his disciples, in fear in the midst of the storm and his controlling the sea and the weather, right, it contrasts and it highlights the faith of those that Jesus healed. And so Jesus has laid out this kingdom plan over the previous few chapters in the Sermon on the Mount. And now he goes out among the people and shows his power over both the physical and the spiritual. He heals, he calms the sea, he asserts his authority over evil spirits. And so this week we're going to start this next section by looking at these first few accounts where Jesus heals and moves among the people. All right, so Jesus first, he has the power to heal. Let's look again at verses 1 through 4. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. Right, leprosy is a severe disease. And there have been some examples of it being healed, especially with modern medicine, and if it's caught early. But especially in the New Testament period, that would have been exceedingly unlikely. And you may remember the story of Naaman from 2 Kings. And he goes to the king of Israel because he's heard that he could receive healing from Elisha. And he, he, the king responds saying, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man stand, sends me word to cure a man of his leprosy? Right? They certainly saw this as something that could only be healed by God. And I remember R.C. Sproul years ago teaching on Leviticus 13 and 14, and, which deal with leprosy. You may have read that, all, all the going back and forth with the priest and, and the leper and what he had to show to the priest to show that he'd been cleansed that the priest was not allowed to touch the leper lest he become unclean. And in that teaching, Sproul compared that situation with the uncertainty and fear that you have with modern diseases that we can't cure. Right? Namely, an example of cancer. Right? You, you go to the doctor, you await some tests, some confirmation of what is going on. There's uncertainty with how things are going to go or how they can help or whether it was caught early or not. We're waiting for a prognosis of, of what may happen. And we need to be able to feel the weight of those situations. And there was a severe social stigma attached to leprosy. Right. Symptoms included scaly skin, a stench of rotting flesh, a raspy voice. Right. They were held at a distance from people for fear that someone else would contract the disease. And 
there would have been a stigma to brushing up against crowds. It says that great crowds followed Jesus down the mountain, and this leper came through the crowds to Jesus and knelt before him. And that's a bold move if you're this leper. It tells us something about the leper, right? He was going to seek out Jesus. And there could have been some elements of submission to Christ, adoration and faith that Christ can heal him, just like Naaman was healed. And he calls Jesus Lord. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And what did he mean when he said Lord? Did he mean sir? Or did he mean Lord God? And given the context, I'd lean towards the latter, right? It's, it's unlikely that this leper was just trying to approach Jesus as sir. And surely he'd heard of the miracles that Jesus had done and his teaching with authority in the Sermon on the Mount. He knew that Jesus had the authority and power to heal. And so Mark's account adds that Jesus was moved with pity. Right, the, the word pity in our culture sometimes has this connotation of, well, bless his heart. Right? But compassion might be a, a, a better way to, to describe this here. Right? Jesus responded with compassion when he says, I will, I will be healed. Right? For, for the priests in Leviticus, if they touched this leper, they too would have been unclean. But Jesus doesn't fear that. He, he's willing to touch the leper. Right? And then something amazing happens. The healing was immediate. That's not the way healing in just healing from a disease in our culture with medicine works. Right? Think of the, the visual impact, the smell. Right? When we get sick, it takes time to heal. You get better over time. And that wasn't the case. Right? This healing was immediate. Jesus had the power to heal. And then Jesus tells him not to tell anyone. So why is that? Right? The leper had just had the most amazing thing happen in his life. A death sentence was removed. The shame of Social isolation was gone. He no longer looked like a leper. He no longer felt the burden of the disease weighing down upon him. And he wasn't supposed to tell anyone. Right? Instead, Jesus instructs the person to follow the commands of the law from Leviticus. Right? And show himself to the priest. So why? Why would he do that? Right, some think of this uh, so that the priest could declare the person to be healed before the news of the miracle got out among the people. And that may be the case. Right? The, the confirmation of the healing from the priest would be a testimony to the legitimacy of the healing that Jesus had done. And that would all happen before the, the news broke and then folks could try to uh, tamp down the news and say, well, that wasn't a real healing. Right, because the, the priest had said, yes, this person was healed. Right, 
It gave evidence to Christ's work. And once that had been done, then the person who was healed could go tell all their friends what happened. It makes a lot of sense. Right? That the radical change this person experienced was not something that would have gone unnoticed. And so what should we take from all this? Right? Jesus is the priest who cleanses. Right? This was an amazing event. This was not a minor healing. Right? This was not just some healer coming to town with a salve that gave relief to the skin. Right? This was not uh, just some side event. It was a complete healing of a disease with little hope for a cure. And Christ's miracles are truly miraculous. So Jesus was not looking for praise here. He was establishing his credibility, the credibility of his ministry. And this speaks to his authority over both the physical and the spiritual. It also speaks to his role in restoring what was broken in the fall. We also see that Jesus fulfills the Mosaic law. Right? We too should have a respect for the Old Testament even if we don't see ourselves under the Mosaic law. He could have ignored the law or sent the person somewhere else or used this to show his power and authority directly. But he shows that working within the rules of the Jewish law, and we see elsewhere that Christ came to fulfill the law. We also see that Jesus' healing points toward the cross. Right there, There's more to be done before heading to the cross, We'll be looking at that in Matthew as we continue in this series. But working miracles was not an end in itself, right? All of these things pointed to the power and authority that Christ commanded. But it would also support the legitimacy of his message. It gives a positive testimony to the world that Jesus would accomplish what he came to do. At the cross. So as we continue through Matthew, we'll turn towards Jerusalem and the cross at some point. But for now, these accounts tell us a little bit about his purpose, right? The proclaiming of the kingdom, the establishing what is good news, that Jesus brings restoration to the broken, right? The broken world around us, and he has power to accomplish that task. He has the authority to accomplish the task. So let's look at this this next account where we see Jesus' authority laid out. Starting in verse 5. When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. To another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come to me from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. So, 
Think of the contrast here between each of these accounts. This account tells us the faith of the centurion, a leader among the force that was occupying Israel. The first story was to a Jew under the Mosaic law, one of the poor among the people, and another is someone who has authority among those oppressing the people. Right, so this collection of accounts is covering a lot of ground. Right, they show that Jesus is not just healing Jews. His message is not just for the Jews. Being a God-fearer, the centurion recognizes Jesus' authority to heal. And he does so to the extent that he believes that Jesus can heal from afar. Right, the proximity was not the issue. Think of the difference between healing from afar and someone who has to come in person and say the right words or use the right trinkets or use the right salve in order to heal. What Jesus is doing here is much different, right? Here is a physical ailment, right? But such stories, especially in light of the subject of authority, and especially in light of, you know, the, the time period, can get confused with spiritual warfare, right? In stories of spirits or diseases, a healer has a certain skill. I'm, I'm thinking in terms of not necessarily the biblical worldview, but the, the, the general um, uh, common worldview you'll, you'll see in, um, in traditional cultures, for example, right? In, in stories of spirits, right, the, the healer is thought to have some sway in dealing with them. Right? Even then, it's usually an economy of spiritual warfare. Say the right things to appease the spirits in the right way. Right? Use the right words to manipulate that spiritual economy. Right? The, the healer and the spirits are in this tug of war. Right? They're on somewhat common ground. But Jesus doesn't have a skill. He has authority. And here Jesus is dealing with physical ailments... We will see in later passages as he deals with spiritual warfare. And he has authority over both the physical and the spiritual. We're going to see that Jesus has all authority. Right? When asked, Jesus says he will come. Right? The, the centurion says, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Right? But he does have all confidence that Jesus can heal the servant. Right? You would expect the centurion to assume some level of superiority over the Jews. The fact that he considers himself unworthy is striking. It shows great humility on his part. And yet Jesus does consider him as worthy to have some healing done on his behalf. And why? He says he has not seen faith like this. Right, so why did the centurion not bring his servant? You might assume that they didn't want to move the paralyzed servant. That's some people's view here. I think it's clear in the text, the centurion did not think it was necessary. Right, he was not a Jew, but he feared God. This illustration by this account of being under authority, the, the soldier quickly obeys the orders of the centurion. He likewise obeys the orders above him. Right, there's, we're all people under authority. And he shows his own submission to Christ's authority by first saying that he 
was not worthy to have Jesus come under his roof. He says, only say the word and my servant will be healed. He knows that Jesus has all authority. And so Jesus replies that he has not found such faith in Israel. And then he makes a striking statement. Many will be in the kingdom who are not sons of Abraham. They will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, while others who are sons by birth will be in outer darkness. Verse 11 is an allusion to Psalm 107. Jesus points out that many will come from outside Israel. Believe, and in the end, be close to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. We read from that earlier. I'm going to reread it for us through verse 6 this time. Or actually, verse 9. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. For he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and the west, from the north and the south. Some wandered in the desert waste, finding no way to a city to dwell in, hungry and thirsty. And their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisfied the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Do you see what Jesus is doing here in Matthew? Right? He's making this allusion to verses from Psalm 107. He's pulling in to his explanation in Matthew the thrust from Psalm 107. Jesus is bringing people into the kingdom from the north and the south, from the east and the west. The hungry will be satisfied. The, the steadfast love of the Lord will be shown to them. Jesus is the king who heals the nations. And this man believed that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior. In his humility before Jesus showed that he was earnest and Christ helped him. And Jesus confirms that the healing has been done. It was immediate. It was done from afar without any special theatrics. He willed it and the servant was healed. It didn't require special words or incantations or special objects. His power was not limited by physical presence because Jesus displays all authority. So why are there so many in our day who are suspicious of authority? Often it's not wielded well. Or even if it is wielded well, people will either assume the worst or they'll work to undermine it to get their own agenda prioritized. And in our society, as it moves away from traditional morality, it should be no surprise when those with authority act immorally and rule poorly. I'm always thought about how strange it was, the discord in our society, when people say, let me live however I want, and at the same time they hold those above them to the standard that they would never hold themselves. 
The, the allure of sin pulls us individually towards our own designs, while some innate sense of what is good grounds us in what is right, and knowing that those who have authority ought to wield it well. And Jesus is able to wield authority rightly. He has all authority and he is all good. And so we can trust that he will rule justly. That he is the king who heals the nations. Right? And that authority, that's authority we can get behind. Right? He is good and his healing is complete. So let's look at that next story here. Starting in verse 14. Jesus heals completely. Right? When Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law laying sick in a fever. And he touched her hand, and the fever left her. And she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons. And he cast out spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. And this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and he bore our diseases. So Jesus goes to Peter's house. He notices that Peter's Peter's mother has a fever. And so he heals her. Now this was likely a more serious illness. It probably wasn't likely just a common cold. Jesus touched her hand and she rose. Again, after... After this, her healing was complete. Right? She felt well enough to serve them. And just like the leper and the servant of the centurion, their healing was complete. Right? She felt well. Commentators point out how these three healings in this section involve a leper, a Gentile, and, and a woman. And three groups that were in some way looked down upon in the culture. Then in the evening, many people were brought to him as a response to these healings. The evening may have been after the Sabbath. Maybe why evening is, is a key word there. But the, the number of people coming at this point is accelerating. They've seen what's been done, and now more come. There's not a lot of detail here, but it makes clear that he healed many. And what was amazing about Jesus' healing is that it was complete. It opens up a new issue for us, right, here also, those oppressed by demons. We're going to get to that in a later section in more detail. Earlier he had healed the sick, and now he also cast out demons. And I think it's worth noting that a distinction is drawn between the demon possession and the physical illness here. Uh, At times people have confused the two, but they're named separately in this passage. And the conclusion of all this is Matthew does not leave us with with just this healing. He makes this connection to the work of the Messiah by pulling in Isaiah 53. He says, this was done to fulfill what was written in Isaiah. Jesus took our illnesses, he bore our diseases. This is the suffering servant passage. Matthew connects Jesus' healing diseases with his suffering and sacrifice for us. Here's that section from Isaiah. 
starting in verse 1, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before us like a tender plant and like a root out of dry ground. He has no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Right? This Matthew passage is primarily focused on these physical healings. And yet Matthew adds the note that all this was to fulfill Isaiah 53. He bore our diseases. Our infirmities are part of the fall. They reflect the brokenness of the world around us. And Isaiah 53 points to Christ's atoning work on our behalf. And so, Jesus is the suffering servant who sets all things right. And given that, what's the connection between these physical healings and the atonement? Let's look at a few different answers that people have given. A strong equivalence and a weak connection and a, a broad association between the two. First, a strong equivalent. Some would say that physical healings is intrinsically tied to the atonement as to make it a casual, or sorry, a causal relationship um, where atonement applies in the special way today to bring physical healings. And I think this is too strong of a connection to make. You can say that physical healings and the atonement are both part of the undoing of the curse, of the fall, but be careful not to say that present healing is a necessary aspect of undoing present sin in our present situation. There's two possible errors there. And one is to see healings as the result of having enough faith. And another is to tie our infirmities with the present sins in our lives, contextually. The, The general decay of the world being tied to the curse does not specifically connect those infirmities to specific sins or a lack of faith, right? Making that strong a connection is an error. It places burdens on people they should not have to bear. And we even see Jesus dealing with this. Remember the, uh, on those of whom the Tower of Siloam fell, if you remember that story, right? A second, a weak connection, right? This is the view that physical healings are a demonstration of Jesus's power in a general way. His authority generally points towards the atonement, right? The point being that they're not explicitly tied, but the healings are a marker. Another version of this is that healings of infirmities are an allusion to removing sin. It just alludes to the idea. I think that's too weak of a connection, Right? And the third is a broad association. For example, ceremonial 
purification for sins. Right? There's a ceremony, there's an impurity associated with those who were healed. Right? Jesus' atonement purifies them and brings them before God. This is the priestly office, and it ties closely to how atonement functions in the Jewish law. Right? Purification for sin. Another way to view showing a broad connection is just undoing the curse and how it impacts both the physical and the spiritual. Right? Physical death will be no more, and we are brought back to God by the work of Christ. Right? The, the point of the passage is that he bears our diseases. It points to Christ and what he completed, and what he accomplished. So he pays for our sins, and he is undoing the curse. And surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we were esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. So these people lived under the effects of the curse of sin. They suffered, and the Messiah shows compassion to them. His work is the undoing of the curse, and he goes to the cross to die for them. And so Jesus' healing points to him being the one with the power and authority to bring true healing, which is the undoing of the curse. Our infirmities may allude to sin and weakness in light of the curse, but we can't end there. Christ saves from future punishment for sin, and he came to take what was broken and make it right. So he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. So in the system of Jewish ceremonial law, a Gentile, a leper, a woman would have all been unable to enter in the holy place, The leper certainly would have been unclean, and yet these are people who Jesus heals. And Matthew has the audacity to tie that to the suffering servant. He carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. What should we be taking from all of this? Healings testify to Jesus' power and authority. The miracles show who he is. The prophecies fulfill. And his own claims point to the fact that he is more than a prophet. He is the Messiah, the Son of God, who has authority to heal many. He is the priest who brings true cleansing. Jesus will gather from the east and the west. Right? Those incredibly sick, a Gentile who worked for those oppressed by God's people. Right? He pointed toward bringing in the Gentiles, and he also demonstrates an attitude of care and compassion toward the marginalized. And they believe Jesus' message. Right? Faith was important in each of these accounts, and the circumstances highlight their faith, and Jesus openly recognizes their faith. The healings were not simply healings. They were demonstrations of people who came to Christ believing his message. He is the king who heals the nations. And he fulfills his role 
as Messiah. Right? He doesn't just do away with infirmities, but he bears them. Right? His ultimate work is to undo the curse. Right? He brings healing to the whole earth. And this is the fulfillment of the narrative of Scripture. Think of the hymns that we sing at Christmas time, right? About peace, joy, and the goodness that comes at the advent of Christ. It's, it's the role that he has as Messiah to bring this to fruition. And so there is wholeness to the healing that he brings. He is the suffering servant who sets all things right. And so Christ's atoning work brings us before the Father. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. His healing points toward a time when he will make all things right. And bearing our diseases points to his advocacy on our behalf before the Father. Can you come to him like the leper, fully confident in his power? Right? He has the power to cleanse. And can you come to him like the centurion, fully confident in his authority? Right? He has all authority in heaven and earth. And can you come to him knowing that he is the suffering servant? He heals many, and his completed work will make all things right. He bore our diseases means that given his power and authority, we can rest knowing that he will bring complete restoration, undoing the curse. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you sent your son to heal and to bring restoration and to completely set all things right. And Lord, help us to be able to rest in that and to trust that you will bring this to completion. But we do not have to fear what is brought before us in the world. And even as we live with the burden and that comes with the fall, that we know that Christ is the one who will bring true healing. So Lord, help us to trust that you will bring this to pass. It's in Christ's name I pray, amen.